0: Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. I'm your host, Cody Sims. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. Today, I'm excited to be joined by a Techstars friend, Brett Brohl, Managing Director of the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator and Managing Partner at Bread and Butter Ventures. In our conversation, we'll discuss everything food and agriculture. Where does our food come from today? And how has that changed over history? How can regenerative agriculture and other practices take us to a more sustainable future? Brett is so passionate about all these topics, so get ready for an awesome episode. Brett, it's so great to have you on the pod. This is going to be a fun one. You and I have known each other for many years via Techstars. But why don't you take a minute here to share with the listeners a bit about your background. How did you become a food and ag investor? Kind of by accident, honestly. Some
1: of my interest in food and ag came through my wife. So she and I moved to Minnesota together back in 2009 for her job. I was a trailing spouse and she went to work for General Mills in through that, started developing a pretty large network in the food space. And I don't think a lot of people know, but the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, out in Minnesota is one of the, I actually would call it the central region for enterprise food. So you have everything from Huge, huge farming community to the trading houses like Cargills, CHS is of the world, all the way through retailers, the Targets, UNFI, Super Value, which was headquartered here, and the big CPG companies, and General Mills, and Land O'Lakes, and Hormel's, and so it really is a bit of the epicenter in the United States as far as enterprise food goes. And so, just being here, you get a lot of exposure and a lot of opportunities to talk food and everything that's happening in food. And so, that's really how it just developed was through the network, and I just took an interest to it and. Find it really fascinating. Plus, I love food. Like, I love cooking. I love eating. I love food. And so it's always been a fun space for me.
0: Whenever we've looked at different food investments at stars, I think the common refrain is everyone's got to eat, right? Like, the, the, the market can't possibly be small. <laughs> Everybody's got to eat something. So it's a big market. <laughs> well, why don't you introduce the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator to us? I mean, what's the focus? And how did it come to be? What companies have you backed? And what are you looking for going forward? And maybe a little bit about Cargill and Ecolab's involvement. So that was like six questions in one, but take it away. The idea for Techstars Farm to Fork started back in 2016. Originally, we ran a
1: program with Land Lakes that was a test program that we didn't end up continuing on as a product of Techstars. But it was awesome. I got to run it. Really interesting insights. It was six weeks. Got to work with six cool companies through that program. And after that, I actually pitched Techstars on running a full-fledged accelerator focused on food tech. And Techstars was bought into it. And this is, hey, go put it together in Minnesota since it is you know it has all those enterprises. And We were pretty quickly able to get Cargill and Ecolab to join forces with us. And they saw the vision and the leadership in both those organizations saw the vision and the need for innovation in the food space. We started working with them in 2017, didn't formally launch by the time we got everything squared away until 2018 was our first year that we ran the Farm to Fork program. We're currently in our fourth class right now. And excited, we're right in the middle of it. Have 11 companies here in the Twin Cities and and virtually with us right now. And excited about the 40 companies that we've worked with over the last couple of years. So it's a really broad thesis. We invest in tech-enabled hardware, software, biotech, on-farm, all the way through future food retail. So it's a pretty broad thesis. So we look at more traditionally what people think of when you say ag tech, but we do a lot of our investments actually in supply chain manufacturing. I always call it the messy middle. So you have the messy middle of food, which is where a lot of the inefficiencies are and have been historically. And all the way through, we've had food retail stuff. We've done marketing, advertising, tech investments, because in the food space, like marketing, advertising, how do consumers find new things matters a lot. It's a broad thesis. We don't invest in consumer products at all. So that's one space that we've really avoided is the CPG space. So it has been more the software and tech-enabled piece. We haven't done a ton as much in like the biotech or synbio space yet. That wasn't really a part of our thesis for the first three years. We added it in this year. And so we're just starting to really kind of ramp up and are certainly interested in investing more in that space over the subsequent years and and in future years. Cargill and Ecolab, to answer that part of the question. So Cargill is, is this crazy company that I find that, not a lot of people have heard of, despite the size of Cargill. And so it's, it's actually the largest privately held company in the United States, I believe still, I think it's the second largest in the world. So, so it's a huge company. They started out as a trading house, headquartered in Minnesota, but they have operations in something like I'll get it wrong, but 170 countries. It's I mean, they have people all over the globe. I think there's a stat out there that 20% of the world's food flows through Cargill in some way, shape or form. And so they really touch a lot of it. They've been a great partner, great mentors. They really understand the food system. They don't really have a lot of consumer brands, which is why people don't know them. They also don't own and manage farms. They're really in that middle, that messy middle themselves, supply chain logistics, buying and selling a food trading house. They touch so many things, they inevitably come up in the food system. They're a bit of an 800 pound gorilla in the food world. And then Ecolab is a company that was started out in the detergent space. So how do they keep things clean? And they really care a lot about our program and about the food space. They work with a lot of restaurants, more on the retail side, but they really care about clean, safe food for people to eat. That's really where their interest comes in. And and they play a lot. They don't play as much on the farm side, although they do have some operations in the the farm space, but they're a little bit further downstream. Once you say the name Ecolab, if you walk into a restaurant, you're now going to see Ecolab stuff all over a restaurant, right? From soap dispensers, to hand sanitizers,
0: to floor mats, to the detergents being used to wash dishes. They are everywhere in a restaurant. That has happened to me for sure. Like I hadn't heard of them before we started working with them at Techstars. And yeah, now I know just their brand all over the place when I go into places. Both these companies are huge,
1: right? I mean, they're billions and billions and billions of dollars in revenue. So They're big, huge companies that have the opportunity to help the startups that come through our program with a tremendous amount of advice and expertise.
0: Why don't you tell us a little bit about outside of the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator, you have also built a successful early stage fund that focuses on food and agriculture tech. Maybe share a bit more about Bread and Butter Ventures and what you're focused on there.
1: It's a seed stage fund where we invest in similar thesis to the Techstars space. No surprise there. We, we you know, we typically would come in after a Techstars, a company goes through Techstars. And we have invested in some Techstars companies, companies that have come through Techstars through it. But it's a real similar focus. And when we first started the fund, and we're we'll going to talk about this later maybe, but there wasn't a lot of capital for food and food tech. Even four years ago, when we started the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator, there wasn't as much capital. And over the last two years... And even before then, it was starting to really become a bit of a sexier place to invest in. And with actually kind of following the sustainability and the interest in sustainability, one of the natural spaces to go to when you talk about impact and sustainability was food, because the food system has such an impact on the planet. I think that that's actually been a driver of the growing interest and the growing amount of capital that's available to food tech startups is the sustainability side of it. But just in general, like what you said at the very beginning, everybody's got to eat. So it's a huge market. And It's one of the markets and verticals that hasn't been as much of a focus area for founders historically, for whatever reason, there are opportunities in it to do things like how do we replace Excel, how do we replace paper and pen, all the way to like automation and robotics and artificial intelligence. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunities across the entire system.
0: Why don't you maybe start at the top with us for those of us who don't know a lot about the food and ag sector and break it down, like help me understand just as a total newbie to the space, sort of what the market itself looks like.
1: So historically, from an investment and entrepreneurship perspective, people called it ag tech. And it really was focused in technology on the farms. And so think about how do you make a farm more efficient? How do you use different breeds of seeds to grow taller pieces of corn or new fertilizers or new pesticides? How do you use automation for big combines? How do you get more out of the acreage that we have was really a big focus of it. And over the last five years, and even probably more three years, it's moved downstream further away from farm where you'd start talking about that messy middle of the food manufacturing space, the logistics and transportation space, all the way to food retail. And the pandemic has certainly shown a spotlight on the massive changes in how consumers get their food. Restaurants going away, what's the future of restaurants? And so it's a really almost like multiple verticals and markets all tied up into one, but they're all interconnected, especially with more availability of data, higher levels of consumer awareness. Consumers care today where their food was grown. They care about what were the inputs in that food. They care about a lot more things, I think, today than they might have, even 10, 20 years ago, because there's just more information available. And so people understand that, oh, this was grown in Yuma, Arizona, or this was grown in Salinas, California, and where it comes from, and why does that matter? How do different inputs potentially affect me? But it's a big space in general. And Some of it you might not even think of food tech. So for example, a logistics startup like that's helping move semis from point A to point B to point C in the most efficient manner. That really has a huge impact in food. One of the companies that we invested in was a company called Trade Lanes. And what they're focused on is making international shipping easy. And so when containers are moving internationally, they get tied up in customs all the time. And largely, it's because documentation isn't done correctly or gets lost or it's done on Excel. And so they built a system that makes it easy to move commodities internationally more effectively and efficiently. And that has a huge impact on the food system. And it has a huge impact on food waste because spoilage sitting at docks has a huge impact on timing and getting food places more efficiently and effectively. So things that you might not think of as food tech really have huge applications into the food system and have huge applications in the sustainability of the food system as well. To bring it back to the pandemic, there was all these stories about people pouring milk out at a farm. In other places, they didn't have milk in a grocery store. That's just a logistics problem that's not like anything else. That's just a logistics problem. And so things like that come into play. Manufacturing is the same thing. You don't think about like manufacturing food, but almost every single piece of food in this planet is processed or manufactured in some way, shape or form. And so it's a huge manufacturing industry. The food space is a huge
0: manufacturing industry. And from like a retail perspective, it's probably the biggest retail industry is like selling a food. Pulling on that Trade Lanes example that you gave, I'd love to understand a little bit about the global dynamics of the food market. You've backed companies from all over the world through the Techstars Farm to Fork program. Help me understand how global the food market really is and also where there are regional differences, because clearly there there have to be some. For
1: sure. There's some really stark differences. If you look at India, for example, where the vast majority of the agriculture is smallhold farms versus a US, Western Europe, and then most of South America, where you have these huge enterprise farms that are massive, massive acreage or hectares, where you have a lot more automation. And so that's one just huge difference. You also have some real regional production of different types of commodities. So like beef, for example, a lot of beef is produced in Argentina, Brazil. Australia and the US. And that beef is moved around the world versus being grown regionally. And that's true for a lot of different types of commodities that you'll see grown. I'd say like produce has probably moved the least like, you know, and that's largely because of shelf life, it's hard to move. Otherwise, I think you would see more shipping of it and having it grown in the regions geolocal, which is probably a part of like the indoor farming movement and which you'll see a bit more in the future. But it's a very international thing. There are different dynamics. We invested in a company in India, for example, it's called Tools Villa. And all they're trying to do is mechanize smallhold farmers in India. Most smallhold farmers in India literally still use hand tools. They are using like hand trowels and shovels to go out and grow food on these small, small, small farms. And they make very little money a year, like less than $1,000 a year probably. And it's a really inefficient way to grow. It's not the best thing for the climate, for the planet to grow in the ways that they grow things because it's, it's not as efficient. There's a lot more food waste all they're trying to do is educate and get modern tools, things that are a common day place, right, here in the U.S. or elsewhere, out to these farmers and train them. And they're doing it in a really unique way. They actually have a YouTube channel that has literally millions of views that trains Indian farmers on how to use mechanized tools. And so that's a really cool startup that's focused on the Indian agricultural market that would never work in the U.S. We have a company in our current class called Haya Bioplastics. They built a manufacturing unit. They take agricultural waste streams and use this manufacturing unit to manufacture compostable containers that are being used to sell at restaurants or for people that are putting like produce trays to sell produce at grocery stores. It's a a really cool model of hey, we're going to take, they're using banana as an agricultural waste stream and turning it into compostable goods. And so also replacing single use plastics. Again, that can work really well on the African continent because of where those waste streams are available to them. And it's a real small, informed thing uh, scenario in Africa. And you can also allow farmers to generate more revenue potentially by selling these compostable trays, leveraging their waste streams. So really cool, unique opportunities are presented in different regions based on how they grow, how people eat. It is very different, vastly different, but there are a couple of reasons that have just huge enterprise forms.
0: Awesome. On that note, you mentioned this a minute ago, but let's start diving into climate. You know, I think the entire global food system accounts for somewhere about a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. Now, a good chunk of that is sort of in the embodied carbon of the energy that's used to harvest, transport, package, and ship. So some of that kind of gets double counted in energy and transportation, greenhouse gas calculations. And you already hinted at this, like general innovation around clean energy, around mobility, around manufacturing, around transport. Like that's all going to obviously benefit our food system broadly. But there are also a lot of factors with food and ag that are super specific to food and ag that matter to climate, like nitrogen-rich fertilizer for crops or methane-rich beef cultivation, land use and supply chain optimizations. I'm curious what trends in food and ag right now have you the most excited, particularly as it relates to reducing the climate footprint of our global food system.
1: I mean, there's a couple of ways that things that we've looked at, we've mentioned alternative proteins a couple of times here. That's certainly always a topic of conversation whenever you bring up making food systems more sustainable. And that is very interesting to me. I like cell-based. I think cell-based is going to be, you know, plant-based is interesting. And I think obviously we already have some huge companies in the plant-based space. I think cell-based is going to be bigger
0: in the long run. Maybe break down the difference for folks who don't know the difference there.
1: Yeah. So plant-based, you're using plants to mimic proteins, but it's still plant-based protein. So usually they're using soy. The vast majority of plant-based proteins are created with soybeans. There's a company called Puris based in Minnesota that created a strain of soy that's widely used for alternative proteins in the plant sector. That's plant-based. So it's not real meat. And the challenge with that is still today is actually mouthfeel. And so when you take a bite out of a plant-based thing, it tends not to have the exact same texture and mouthfeel as traditional meat would. For a meat eater, that's an important piece of it. And cell-based is literally they're taking stem cells from the animal that they are creating and growing the meat in a lab. It's expensive. It is pretty energy intensive right now. And so that is a knock is from like a sustainability angle. Is it like actually more sustainable? But I believe that in the long run, it certainly will be. And if you look at it like a pound to pound basis, growing a pound of lab grown meat versus a pound of meat in a traditional manner, lab-based because it's controlled, because you can get better at it, because you can get more efficient with it and effective with it. Like It's hard to tell a cow not to eat. In order to grow a cow, you're going to have to always feed the thing. It's always going to release gases, methane into the environment, which is a big part of the the footprint that it has. I actually think that the molecular side or the cell-based side is going to outpace plant-based Maybe it's 20 years from now, but because I actually think that the meat eater, the person that wants to eat proteins and traditional proteins is more likely to accept that than a plant-based alternative. When you go to a grocery store and you buy ground beef and one is actually beef, and it, maybe there'll be a sticker on it that says like, one will say traditional grown and one just like kind of you have like organics now in a grocery store where this one's organic and this one's not. I can see a world where they like, give a sticker where one's like lab and one's not, but it's the same thing. It looks exactly the same. and It tastes exactly the same. It's a little bit
0: less of a leap of faith for a consumer, and it's just a huge space, and it's not going away. Anything else in the carbon reduction world and in, in the food and ag space that, that gets you excited? I love logistics and
1: manufacturing plays. I think that it's like the unsexy underbelly of food, and so I love anything that makes our supply chain more effective and efficient. And when you talk about like food waste, food waste is a huge emitter of gases that are not good. Like when food goes like it spoils and release emits, and you spent time growing it and all this, you know, all of that input too. We can talk more about like feeding the population, but like food waste is such a huge problem. And a lot of it is actually in the supply chain, not something went bad in my refrigerator. It's in the supply chain. And so I'm really bullish on supply chain focused startups. And so we have a company called EcoPlant from that was out of Tel Aviv, Israel, which helps make food manufacturing processes more effective and efficient through the management of the compressor systems, which sounds crazy unsexy. And I love it. Like it's the most unsexy thing. They're working with some major food enterprises that you would have heard of, and they're showing that they're reducing the energy costs of these compressor systems by like 20-25%. And the compressor systems in these food manufacturing facilities are the number one user of energy. And so if you can like reduce that footprint that significantly, it's amazing. Like, and it also excites me from an investment perspective, because from day one, when they go in, they have a positive ROI for their customer. They charge a percentage of the energy savings. And so A, they're reducing their footprint. B, they're saving this company money, and they're making money at the same time. So it's like a win-win-win. Everybody wins in that scenario. And those types of situations just excite the hell out of me.
0: That's fantastic. we definitely going to come back, and I want to spend some time talking about food waste. I want to spend some time a bit more on the supply chain side. But you hinted at feeding the planet, which I feel like is really the crux of what this all comes down to. We tend to forget, I think, when looking at our global food system, and really almost any human created system it's really only been the last 100 years that we've seen scale develop to the point where we are today. And that's been due to the population growth. In the year 1900, it was something like 1.6 billion people. And today it's 7.7 billion. You know, Many people are saying that the population will peak at around 10 billion by about the year 2070. So really from a food perspective, we just have this really challenging need to continue to scale our ability to feed the planet while also reducing the emissions footprint in parallel at the exact same time, right? It's over the next 10 or 20 years that globally we have to bring our emissions footprint down to risk essentially catastrophe while population is going to continue to ramp and increase. And on top of that, you know, we've talked a bit about lab-based meats and cell-based meats and this, that, and the other. I mean, there's a growing trend around the world of people wanting Western diets, which is more meat-based. So I guess, given all of this, what sort of big systems level changes do you think are required? Is this a, we all have to get austere and sort of manage our personal preferences? Or do you think that there are technology changes that are truly going to help here? Do You think it's going to come down to regulation? It's probably a little bit of all of the above, but I'm sure these are problems you have to grapple with all the time and deciding what kind of thing you want to back.
1: You're right. It, It is a little bit from all of these columns have to happen for it to probably really be sustainable the first place I often think about is actually food waste. And I go back to this food waste thing over and over again. But depending on the region you're in, you know, 20 to 30% of the food that's grown goes to waste, never gets consumed. And so it's a staggering amount of food that never gets consumed. And when you talk about like the ability to feed population without increasing footprint, if you could reduce that to a very insignificant number, you wouldn't increase the footprint at all from where we are today. But that is from the consumer level. How do we get consumers to not waste food as we buy things. That's at the logistics level. That's at the grower level. That's also, it's not just the grower level. It's also making sure you can get, if we have overcapacity at one milk producer and undercapacity at another, making sure we have the systems in place. That A, the data and the information that we know we can move this milk from point A to fulfill the milk from point B that they couldn't produce and get it to the right place at the right time without it spoiling. I sound like a broken record, but I keep coming back to this logistics thing. But one of the reasons it is so interesting to me and where we do need some help, I mean, if you think about like food, it's the hardest logistical challenge on the planet. It's heavy, you have to move it, and it can go bad, it's spoiled. And so maybe pharmaceuticals, the pharmaceutical space can match it as far as like a, a logistical challenge. But if you talk to people at Cargill, they say they're, they're a logistics company as much as anything else. They're really good at moving food from point A to point B. I do think that there's a real opportunity in emerging markets like India. It's not even new It's How do we get the technology that's already been invented to be adopted by smallhold farmers? That's true in a lot of parts of the African continent and Southeast Asia and lots of parts of Southeast Asia, including India. So, you know, how do we not have like crazy wild breakthroughs, but just how do we really find an effective, efficient way to distribute technology and train farmers to use technology? And that's good for everybody because that'll make them more efficient. They'll make more money for the same amount or less work. And it's, you know, they'll be able to produce more food at the same footprint level. You know, I think from a protein standpoint, it is probably going to take things like plant-based proteins to get really close to what you'd expect in a burger. You know, a meat eater will be happy eating a soy-based, even soybeans have a footprint it might not be as great as a cow, but it still has a footprint. And so it will take cell-based. I think cell-based will be a big part of the protein future for sure. So those
0: are some breakthroughs that are coming. That's great. The training concept, and we've seen the success of the Techstars portfolio company, FarmCrowdy, that that's what they do, right? They train farmers in Nigeria on how to use modern farming practices and they're building a great business as a result of that. So I think seeing that firsthand, you've talked about food waste a few times. Where I sit in the climate world, I see so many founders excited to work on food waste. It seems like it's a, kind of a common entry point for a lot of founders who are trying to come up with an idea that they can do that has impact, that has climate purpose. And I'm curious about your general thoughts about building a business in this space. Do you have examples of folks you think are trying to tackle it the right way? And then I'm sure you've seen lots of people running into pitfalls when it comes to trying to build a business in the food waste space as well that you, maybe you could share just as, as helpful advice for founders who are out there. It is a really hard space to
1: build a business in. I actually think that the easiest way to build a business that affects food waste is actually almost tangentially, like where you are a logistics company, and you're solving a real problem in logistics, or you're a manufacturing company, and you're solving a real problem in manufacturing. One of the ROIs for your customers is reduction in food waste in that space. And one of the reasons it's hard to do it is it's hard to get people to pay for reduction in food waste Did people just assume it's going to happen. And so it's kind of written in. And it's always easier to be able to increased revenue than it is to sell an increase in revenue than it is a reduction of cost, especially a cost like a food waste cost. And so you see a lot of upcycled plays right now. That's really interesting and exciting to a lot of people. We invested in one company that does upcycling. They upcycle Okara, which is a byproduct of the soy manufacturing process, and they're turning it into a flour. So it's an ingredient that can be used and has additive benefits. Is that re- renewal mill? Yeah, Renewal Mills out of Oakland, Oakland, California. But there's a lot of steps to that. It takes a long time. A, you have to be able to do that efficiently and effectively. And if you're going to try and sell it as an ingredient, you have to have a really consistent ingredient to have any large purchasers buy it. So if General Mills is going to buy everything, they want that ingredient to be the same every single time, you know, with very low variance. And so it can be a difficult place to go into and get into in that world. So, you know, just be aware of that, go into it with eyes wide open. You see a lot of like the imperfect foods, and then there was a lot of the imperfect foods knockoffs or the ugly produce, basically, where things that would have historically been thrown away. Really, that company, those types of companies are are actually logistics companies. That's how do we go and collect? And that's the challenge is how do we go and collect these things that were going to be thrown away and then monetize them in a way that is meaningful enough to at least
0: cover our costs of moving them from point A to point B? There's another Techstars company out of Canada called Flash Food that's doing that rather effectively, right? In terms of taking grocery store food that would have been thrown away and helping grocery stores monetize it more effectively.
1: Yeah, and that's a hard challenge too. you know. And so how do you manage putting, do you put physical things inside the grocery store? So how do you make that work in and of itself? We have a company that Techstars farm to fork companies called Food. And what they're using is they're using computer vision to help monitor and manage Things at like hot bars, or in your, if you're in a kitchen at a restaurant, like what foods are getting thrown away and wasted because they weren't getting consumed in a variety of other use cases. And it's a, really an inventory management play. Like, how much should we be making? And so it takes, collects data that human beings have been doing, but they're using like paper and pen and not really analyzing ever and automating a lot of that process to make restaurants and supermarkets and other big food suppliers better at inventory management. So they're just not overbuying or overcooking things that aren't getting consumed every day. And so that's a really interesting use case for computer vision in the space. You could imagine that also at the back end of a grocery store where we're throwing out food every day that's expired. But how are we really collecting that data and leveraging that data to make smarter inventory decisions? And you could use computer vision and something like what food is doing to accomplish that goal. And That's why that company excites me in that food waste
0: space. I'm going to pull on the thread of logistics and you were saying hey I see a lot of food waste companies that at their core are actually logistics companies you had one last year that I want to tie that into packaging right so I also hear a lot of startups that are wanting to come into food and like work on sustainable packaging you had a company Ixon Technology that I think is doing just that like they've invented a new way of packaging food that actually completely changes the supply chain of cold storage for meat. Maybe you know, share a little bit more about that and and then just any sort of trends you have on packaging. I guess Dispatch Goods in your current class is also a logistics company that is improving packaging to some extent too. Yeah, both of those are great examples. And, and Ixon's doing exactly what you just said. They have a way of packaging
1: and storing proteins where you can keep them at room temperature for up to two years and the protein doesn't go bad. They're based in Hong Kong. He mailed me, a cardboard box full of pork chops overseas via regular FedEx, like not cold stored, not shipped in anything. I got into my house. I cooked them for myself, my eight-year-old, my six-year-old, my wife. All at the same time, we ate them and we all survived. Who knows what temperatures these things were stored at? We didn't get sick um, and they tasted delicious. And again, like you talk about the food waste reduction, that reduces, if you can store protein for up to two years on a shelf, that reduces food waste. But also talking about reduction of energy needs, if you re- Reduce the need of cold chain for protein shipping, that's a game changer. And it matters a lot to the manufacturers, like let's just say Cargill, who manufactures a lot of protein. If they don't have to pay for cold chain, that's a huge ROI for them. Even if the food waste isn't an ROI for them, the reduction of cold chain is. And so there's all different kinds of interesting ways that they can play in this world. It can be direct to consumer, it could be B2B. There's just all kinds of opportunities in front of a company like Ixon. You mentioned dispatch goods, they're also a logistics company, right? What they're doing is they're trying to remove single-use plastics from restaurants and enterprises, specifically when you're taking food away to eat from somewhere, rather than you having to use a compostable or a plastics container. They actually use real containers that you take away. You drop them off at a drop site or dispatch goods will actually come pick them up. And as they get to scale, it is a significant reduction on environmental impact not just through reducing plastic from being in the ocean, but also environmental impact, the production of the plastics. And they've done a lot of studies in case studies, and it does take some scale to do because people have said like, oh, well, you have to drive around and pick them up. Well, yeah, but as long as you're doing picking up enough items per stop, and eventually, I'm a huge believer in robotics for the food space, a huge believer, eventually, that last mile stuff is going to be taken care of by robotics, in my opinion. And so it could be a huge game changer. And there's another company in the space called Loop, which they're focused more on um, reusable packaging for CPG World. And Dispatch Goods is an amazing company out of the Bay Area that is more focused on restaurants and then working with enterprises and enterprise cafeterias or or last mile
0: um, companies. So really excited about both of those companies. Super, Brett. Well, I can wrap with you on different founder examples all day of fun innovators in the space. I'm curious for those who are listening who are building businesses right now, particularly people who are experienced entrepreneurs but are new to working in food and ag, What advice do you think is important for them to know about trying to get into the food and ag space?
1: If you're trying to sell to farms, remember that farms are cyclical. Most farms are cyclical. And so if you're trying to do pilots, like you go in one growing season and run it, it's longer sales cycles. And so you tend to need a bit more capital is um, one thing at at the farm level. While there's a growing amount of capital focused on food tech, it's still is not at the level of some other spaces like a fintech or um, some other verticals. So there's still more and more generalist funds. Some of the big names out there are moving into the food space. But as far as like just focused on food tech, it's still a relatively small community. And so be ready for that when you come into this space as well. And then I think the biggest thing too is what's the ROI? Like, Put yourself in your customer's shoes. Even if you are the most, you have the greatest idea to fix the planet and you know through food sustainability, you're going to have to show an ROI to whoever your end consumer is, whether you're a B2B or B2C company. Like, They have to have that value in what you're doing. And it's actually really tough to sell the sustainability angle on in and of itself. You have to be better, cheaper, faster. You have to do something else in addition to the impact play in the food space still, I think. Or at least the companies that really explode and take off are the ones that have additional Benefits to everybody, to all of their stakeholders outside of it's
0: just, just, it's more sustainable than the alternatives. I think that's true in climate tech in general. We're approaching a world where cost curves are coming down and you can build businesses that are more efficient or have a better product than the heavy carbon alternatives. So I think that makes sense that that's also the case in in the food space. I guess the last question, which is something I ask every guest, regardless of building in the food business. What's one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs embarking on a climate-focused endeavor?
1: Just do it. Start it. If you have an idea, give it a shot. Like Go out there and build something quickly. Get it out cheap and fast and dirty. What's the saying? If you're proud of the thing you put out there, you overbuilt it. So get something out there. See if it works. See if somebody will buy it. See if somebody will pay for it. Test it. Do it really quickly. And then iterate, iterate, iterate. But don't just sit on the sidelines. Go out and start something.
0: Awesome, Brett. How can people get a hold of you if they want to reach you?
1: I'm pretty easy to find my emails. I'm sure we can put it in the post-up post here, but it's brett.broll at techstars.com. You can find me in, on Twitter, at Brett I also have a YouTube page where we put a bunch of advice out for founders. It's called Brett's Brain. And so we've got probably a couple hundred videos up there, short snips
0: for just videos that are entrepreneurial tips. So lots of different ways to see what I'm thinking about. Is it true that at Brett Broll is the best collection of dad jokes on Twitter? It is. <laughs> Highly recommend people check it out. Brett, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for all the work you're doing to help us build a better food economy. Yeah, thanks, good Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the discussions. You can check out the episode notes for more info about our guests and resources we mentioned. See you on the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast.